The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. So uh, we're uh, finishing up what's been a long series for us. We've been calling it, can you guess, Saved 2. We've been thinking about the life God has for us as Christians, and we've been wanting to end it, of course, with what we're ultimately saved to, which is heaven. So as I've been researching this, I'm aware of how two weeks is not enough to get to so many of the good questions that you ask and so much of the information that is in the scriptures. But we're going to do our best. What I want to think with about you as we begin this morning is two reasons this topic of heaven is so important. Uh, Number one, wouldn't you agree there's a lot of things in this world that want to push you away from following Jesus? A lot of things that want to push you away. For me, one of the biggest ones is the subtle goodness of normal life. You know, we, we believe everything that we enjoy that's good, God gave it to us, right? It's all from Him. But I, I don't know about you, but on a beautiful day at the beach with my wife whom I love and my kids, I could think, I could feel, and I'm a pastor so I'd never say this, but I can think and feel, oh, this is heaven. This is heaven. Is anybody with me on that? Now, some of us, you're, hey, um, some of us are suffering a little more. It's easier to long for heaven when you're suffering, isn't it? Uh, Some of my more mature friends are like, just wait longer. It's easier to uh, anticipate the glories of the the next life. But uh, even if you're not an atheist, a kind of materialistic-y feel can make you think, oh, this is heaven. And, and we have to realize, no, it's so not. It's so not. Number one, this won't last. Every good thing here won't last. Number two, I want and I need more God himself. Um, so what I'm getting at here is, we saw this last week. If you want to hear the message, it's on our website. L- a longing for or an anticipation for heaven is humongous for how we live this life. So when we face these pressures not to follow Jesus, where it's kind of like a practical atheism, everything here is great, or just say, hey, I got to live for this world, uh, my status here, my money here. Uh, a longing for heaven reminds us, hey, this is just the shortest little blip of your experience as a human being. And the next one coming is going to be far more real and far longer, far more important. Longing for heaven enables us to live the life we should live here. We saw that some last week, but we're going to be in the book of Revelation, for for instance, this morning, and the Apostle John here is writing this letter to Christians who are suffering greatly for their faith. That's another thing that might want to push you away from following Christ, right? If you have integrity where where you work, you want to follow Jesus, if you have integrity on what you say, if you want to share the gospel with somebody, at some point, you are going to face persecution for wanting to follow Jesus. And boy, that's when the rub comes, right? Boy, it'd be easier to just, I'll be a secret agent Christian, you know, generally a nice person, but I won't be explicit about this because I don't want to face the persecution. Well, John is writing Christians in the first century, and man, they were persecuted in ways we can't even imagine. And he's writing them this letter to say, come on, be faithful, no matter the cost, come on. And and the, the carrot hanging in front of them, it's worth it to be faithful no matter the cost. Why? Heaven is waiting for you. Heaven is waiting. 
It's worth it. So man, we, one reason it's so important to think about and long for heaven is the motivation for how we live this life. It's motivation. Number two, second reason this is so important. What can I say to you more than this? It, this is real. Have you, the weight of this is landing on me again this morning as I'm trying to share this with you. Is it true that life is leading to like this major fork in the road and it's either heaven or hell for every single person? Is that true? Um, is it true that how you live now, what you want, what motivates you, your choices are preparing you for that next place, wherever that will be? Is that real? Jesus said it was, and he rose from the dead. I'm confronted by how, how easy it is to explore more about my next vacation than to really think about my next life. Are you on the road to heaven? Or to quote our favorite band, are you on the highway? It's a highway because it's big, fast, easy to drive on. The highway to hell. Um, that's real. And our, it never makes the newspapers except for in the obituaries. But you know what's happening to lots and lots of people today? They're dying. They're dying. I think the studies show there's like a one-to-one -one correlation between those who are born <laughs> and those who die. If you believe in the next life, wow. I mean, what's bigger than that, right? So important. So we're thinking about heaven thinking about heaven this morning. I have offered to many of you, if you had questions, I'd try to answer them. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to hit some of those today. Um, so this is what we're gonna do. I wanna, I wanna think about our motivation for heaven. We're gonna think about the two heavens today. If you're like, what? I'll try to explain that, okay? We're gonna think about some of the two heavens today and then some of those questions, you know, what will it be like? Last week we, we looked at Gary Larson's Far Side, you know, and he kind of shows our mythological views of heaven. You're in your white bathrobe and you have wings and you're sitting on a cloud and you're bored out of your brains, right? Anybody ever have that? I hope heaven's not like that, you know? Uh, well, okay, what, what will it be like? We'll get there a little bit. We're asked that question. You know, some of us are like, I can't imagine enjoying heaven if I'm not married anymore. How does that work? Get at that a little bit. And that really hard question, great question some have asked, how can I be happy in heaven if I know some people I love aren't there? I'm going to give my shot at that one. But at the end, we're going to see what it takes to get to heaven. And although, you know, many of us, most of us probably have an answer to that, I think the angle this passage takes is unique and fresh on how you get to heaven. So we'll look at that. But before we, before we get to the two heavens, can we just think a little bit about what we mean by this word heaven? Do you ever find when you're reading the Bible or just in conversation, having different meanings for the same word can really mess you up? You know, if you're a little kid, what's the joke, right? I love chocolate, and what's your friend say? Do you want to marry it? Oh, you know, so funny. Um, well, the word love can mean quite a few different things. Same thing with heaven. So what are some options on just how we use the word heaven? Well, one could be the sky, 
the birds fly, you know, in between the trees and the, the clouds, the skies. The Bible uses the word that way, heaven. Then there's actually a second heaven if you're using biblical language, and that's like the stars, the next level, okay? The heavens declare the glory of God. The stars, great. Both real words to use, or real meanings to use for the word heaven. Another one is a pleasurable experience, right? If you eat a brownie and it's just perfect. Heavenly, okay? This is so good. Or every other love song, right? Baby, being with you, right? Ooh, heaven is a... No, nobody's with me on 80s ballads? A couple, thank you. I got three people. All right, thank you. We could keep going, but I won't. Um, a pleasurable experience, that's the way we use it. Oh, this is just heaven. All right, fine. But of course, another way to look at heaven was, okay, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Uh, that's what we say. What are we talking about? So if you're a Christian, you, you have a biblical, you're trying to have a biblical view of these things. If you died tonight, where would you go? Well, you'd say heaven, but, I, but I'll, is it heaven? What's, another way to use the word heaven is where we'll be forever, right? Do you remember what that is? It's an earth, actually. The 80s song is true, in a way. Heaven is a, if you're talking about where you'll be forever, heaven is a place on earth. Heaven actually is earth, the new earth, right? Isn't that heaven? That's the, the next heaven, the ultimate heaven, the real heaven. Heaven here, right now, so if you die tonight, where would you go? Well, you'd go somewhere, we believe. Where is that place? How should we think of it? Well, there's a lot I don't know about what it will be like, but I can give you a little what I do. Check out what Jesus said in Luke 23, 43. One of my favorite lines in the Bible. Who's he talking to, right? The thief on the cross? What kind of resume does that guy have as far as being super good, right? How do you know you're going to go to heaven? I'm a good person. Thief on the cross can't even pull that one off, right? I got nothing. But, but he believes in who Jesus is and what he's done as much as he can there in that moment. And what does Jesus say to him? Great words, right? Truly, I say to you, a few words to pay attention to. Number one, when? Today. Right now. Today, you will, next phrase, be with me, you and I, today. Where? In paradise. Paradise. You know, if we want to be careful with our language, we actually might not say, my grandma died and went to heaven. If you want to be more careful, you might say, my grandma died and went to paradise. That's what Jesus calls it. Paradise. And if you're an ancient Near Eastern listener, the word paradise is from a Persian word, and it really means like um, the most gorgeous garden, really. Honestly, where do you, you want to go? To a resort, if you want to go there. And what does it look like? It's not just white and sterile, right? What do you, what do you have? You have, it's lush, it's beautiful, it's cultivated, uh, that's the idea of paradise. It's a place of beauty. It's a place of rest. It's a place of enjoyment. That's probably, that's probably what an early listener would have heard. A beautiful place. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So when we talk about, okay, it's fair to say, 
You're a Christian, you trust Christ, you die, where are you gonna go right now? He hasn't made the new earth yet. I'm gonna go to heaven. What do you mean? Well, I'm gonna go to paradise, a place God has made for him to be with his people, with his creatures. We get hints, angels are there, right? The cute little fat babies with their diapers and their bow and arrow. <laughs> Gotta unlearn so many things, right, about angels in heaven. What happens when you see a, an angel in the Bible? Do you remember? You got any ideas? You pee your, your pants. You are shaking. You're trembling. Every single angel who visits somebody's like, don't be afraid. Why do they have to say that? Because we're afraid. There's armies and armies, myriads and myriads of angels in heaven. And when they sing or they shout, it sounds like Niagara Falls. Uh, there's varieties of angels. If you read Ezekiel or, or um, Isaiah 6, awesome, strange creatures. And God's people are there. And guess who else is there? Jesus is there. You know, he still has a body. Do you believe that? Jesus took on flesh to save us, and he's keeping that body forever. It's a resurrected body. Where is he right now? Is he just floating in the nether worlds of heavenly space? You ever con How does this work? He has a body. You know where bodies need to be? In a place. Isn't the whole Bible have this theme of getting God's people to the perfect place for them? Eden, the promised land, the new earth, paradise while we wait. It'll be paradise. You'll be waiting. I want to give you a few more hints of what it is probably like from Revelation, actually, chapter 6. You can put that slide up. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. Before we get into that, a few tips for Revelation. You ever tried to read the book of Revelation and been like, this is crazy, okay? I don't understand. Well, if you don't understand, you're in good company. Uh, but we know that Reve Revelation is apocalyptic literature, okay? That's why you come here, the big words. Everyone want to say it with me? Apocalyptic, apocalyptic. Part of that, what that means is it uses symbolism to make a point. And I think this is where we get lost. Uses symbolism to make a point. So how many of you, you're not totally thrilled when you think of white robes and streets of gold? You're like, that sounds like a Benny Hinn service, you know? He's got his white robe on and all his gold everywhere, and you're like, ew. We're forgetting something. The bi apocalyptic literature uses symbolism to make a point, and, and here's what you got to take with you. Symbolism doesn't mean less. It means more. It doesn't mean less. It means more. So imagine I'm, I'm making a pretend vision of heaven, and I saw a group of men with rings on their third finger, and you might say... Jeez, why do these guys care so much about jewelry? It's gross. I don't want to go there. Oh, but what, if it's a symbol, what could it mean? What does the ring on your third finger mean? Oh, they're married. So is a marriage bigger or smaller than a ring? It's infinitely bigger. Um, my, my fingers, I always have to, I'm embarrassed. I, I am married, happily married. My finger is a bit dislocated, and it hurts to wear the wedding ring. My wife forgives me. I promise, I'm keeping my covenant. Um, but the ring means more, right? If somebody has a ring on, oh, they, they've made promises to someone. They're, they love someone. There's a home. There's a friendship. 
There's, there's provision, there's protection, there's compromise, there's relationship, right? It's bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's more and more beautiful. That's the way we should see these symbols. So streets of gold, we're like, ooh, you know, God's fashion sense is a little blingy. No, no, no. Okay, what's, a, what's a, one of the most valuable commodities here? What, do you, what could we all use a little more of? Okay, gold. There, gold is so crappy as to be something you pave your streets with. Do you see the point? What's the point? What we say here is so precious, compared to what's there, it's just, it's not that much. So there, you, you kind of have to use your imagination based on the symbol. What does it say about what there is like? So much better. We looked at this next week. Every aspect, nature, you, relationships, food, beauty will be better. So in this passage, we have white robes. Man, this bugged me when I was a kid. I didn't want to go to hell for sure, but I wasn't excited about sitting in my white bathrobe. It was like God had to steal from the Hyatt to dress his people, you know? What's well, a symbol? What's the white robe a symbol of? Righteousness, God's character, his covenant-keeping character. So it's a symbol of, hey, he clothes us. So he knows us. He cares about us. He provides for us. He brings us to himself. He makes us like him. Remember, symbols aren't less. They're, they're more. It means more. So let me give you just a few, few things we can take with this. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they'd borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. What kind of group of people is this? What'd they all go through? Did you see it? They're all killed for their faith. Martyrs. And so the picture is, who's John writing to? He's writing to people who might be more martyrs. And so this is meant to do what? Encourage you to keep going, okay? The martyrs are under the altar. Now, do you think in paradise they're really hiding under like a communion table forever, you know? No, in this holy place they are protected, They're valued. They suffered. They made it. It was worth it. Uh, there's so many things to see here. Number one, I think we can see that in paradise, you are you. Uh, one question I've received several times is, does your past play into your future? You know, some people so sometimes think, will we forget everything when we're, when we're in heaven? And I think this text says, absolutely not. What, do they re what is remembered about them? Who they are and what they've done. So their past is absolutely a part of their present and their future. Their past is known. So they are still recognizably themselves. You will be you. And the life you've lived is just like it's a part of you now. It will be a part of you then. Second, what are they doing? I love this. They're asking God questions. Right? How long? So that tells me at least this. Uh, they can talk. <laughs> In fact, they ask it with a loud voice. So they can really express themselves. Not only that, if you can ask questions and look for an answer, guess what else you can do? 
You can learn. Will there be learning in heaven? Yes. The only person who doesn't learn anything is not you. <laughs> it's God. I think we will learn forever and ever and ever. Sometimes people wonder if we'll be bored in heaven because we say, well, it'll be perfect. And then when you think of perfection, for some reason we think of static, right? It can't go any further. It's perfect. And then we're like, that doesn't sound perfect because that's not what life is like for me. Well, throw that out. That's actually, I don't, that's not in the Bible. You'll, you'll never be bored in heaven because God is infinite. This was so great about this. He will never run out of ways to amaze you. Things for you to do, things for you to enjoy, relationships to pursue. You can ask questions. You can learn. Not only that, do these folks care about what's going on on earth? It's a part of their whole prayer, right? Our people are still suffering. Look, look at verse 11. They were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. So who are they thinking of? Other Christians, brothers and sisters who aren't there yet. So do they have a knowledge of what's happening on earth? Absolutely. Do they care about it? Absolutely. You're still you, but you have a clear perspective. You have a clear perspective. You're right there with God. They call him sovereign Lord, holy and true. They know him. They see who he is. He's in charge. He's set apart. He's awesome. He's faithful. He rules. They also care about justice. They don't like suffering on this world either. They're ready for it to end. How long? How long? So you are you. You have a clear perspective. You're known and you're loved. I love that God, that the word says, they were each given a white robe. Why do you like the word each there? Nobody's forgotten. Each. Nobody's forgotten. He knows, he knows you. He will know you and you are cared for. You're provided for. You're known and loved. And not only that, of course, you're with Jesus. I'm going to take you to a different text for this just to make it so clear. Philippians 1, 21 to 23. Where's Paul when he writes this? Do you remember? He's in prison. He's wondering if he's going to be executed. And he says some of the craziest words, just so outlandish. Do you believe this? For me to live is Christ. So what's life all about for Paul? Jesus. Can you say that? To live is Christ. And then these words, to die. And just by the way, I don't want to die. Death is, death is the loss. It, it's the loss of everything here. And Paul says to die is What? Gain. What does it mean to gain? Upgrade. It's better. Promotion. Increase. Do you like to gain? Do you like to go from low to higher, from worse to better? Let's gain. All our, all, what are we pursuing so much in our lives in every aspect? Gain. I'm trying to build my wealth. I'm trying to build my relationships. I'm trying to build my skills. It's good. It's human. Gain. I want more. And Paul says, well, really, I'm going to face gain when I, when I die. To die is gain. By the way, who is this for? Is it just for super-duper apostles? Okay. Is this only for super-duper varsity 
Christians? Three church services a week, Christians? Uh, who's this for? How do you get perfectly righteous? How do you get all you need? Trust Christ. It's freely as a gift, right? Who's this for? Anyone who trusts Christ, this is for you. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And look what he says in verse 23. My desire is to depart. What's that word depart mean? I'm gonna leave here and go somewhere else. Where? Paradise, okay? Depart, because what's that phrase? I'll depart and I will be with Christ. Doesn't sound like just what Jesus said. Today you will be with me in paradise. I wanna be with Christ. So ancient Christians were known for celebrating death at their funerals and talking about it like their friend went from one place to another. That's why we celebrated our funerals, right? Did those we love who trusted Christ cease to exist? Now we need to be careful. Did they get their wings and their halos and are they, you, you might get the idea from some funerals they're like hovering just above us, you know, if you catch the light right. Are they watching, hovering with their wings? No, no, why would we think that? Where are they? They're in paradise. With who? Jesus and all of God's people who've made it there so far. Paradise. Don't fear death. Easier said than done, I know. But don't fear death. What was it that took the Christians who were, you know, thrown to the lions? and had them standing up and singing as they faced lions. That happened, you know. How on earth can that happen? Because they knew that when those fangs crushed on the vein, there'd be a few minutes of discomfort. And then, paradise. Gain. What a a taunt we have to the world. Paul says this, death, where's your sting, right? Can you look, I mean, for all the world, if this life is all we have, getting old and dying, you're done after that. This is as good as it gets for those without Christ. For those with Christ, this is as bad as it will ever get. Can't we face death with a chuckle? Bring it? If I believe this, to die is gain. I'll be with Jesus. I'll be with Jesus. I'll be with those who've gone before. I'll be in paradise. But one more thing to think about this paradise is you're not actually in heaven yet, right? Did you notice something about Revelation 6? Who are they asking? Who are they asking God? They're already in paradise. What are they asking him? How long? Isn't that interesting? They're in paradise, but they're still... They're still waiting for something. It's not, it's not heaven yet. Haven't made it yet. Let's look at heaven part two. Revelation 21. This will be in your Bibles. Follow along. Page 1041. A couple of things to notice about this passage. Revelation 21, verse 1. John says, then I saw a, give me, give me that word. New. 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 What does the word new have in it? When you say the word new, don't you have a concept of the old? 
it's recognizable. I got a new car. But when you say that, don't you know what a car is? Yeah, you have a concept of it. New. And John says, I saw a new, what? Earth. Do you have a concept of earth? Well, of course. Isn't there some beauty here that you love? Aren't aren't there some sweet things? What's coming? New. Better. More beautiful. More amazing. Boy, if you like anything about this life, we covered this last week. If you like anything about this life, when you, when you have that longing for something that lasts and it's better and it's more deep and more beautiful and never ends, when you mourn relationships ending and the corruption and the brokenness and the hurt and the depression and the despair and you long for intimacy and closeness and excitement and adventure and beauty and truth and you're hurting for it, you're just wishing heaven was here yet. And it's coming. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first one passed away and was no more. Look at verse 2. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Do we use the language, I hope we go to heaven, and I, that makes sense. I get the point. You want to be there in that place, and I don't want to go to hell. But really, in this picture, what's going where? Is it a view of us going to heaven, or is it a view of heaven coming to earth? That's what it is. Heaven comes to earth. The two are finally joined the way they should be, the abode of God and the abode abode of human beings. One place, new earth, beautiful, and everything is new. How many of you are a little sad when it said the sea was no more in verse 1? Okay? All the fishers, the surfers, We're like, how can there be heaven if there's no gnar to shred? (laughs) I had to Google that phrase because I've never, (laughs) I've never actually done that. No C. Come on. Really? Well, um, some good news. The C in biblical language is a very loaded term. So when you're looking at biblical poetry. Leviathan lives in the sea. Who's that? Kind of like cosmic evil. It's a poetic way to look at evil, chaos, ruin. And if you, you can imagine 2,000 years ago, the sea would be a rather scary place to hang out. Storms. You know, you get on a boat and you go out in the, even the Mediterranean was crazy, right? The disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee, that's an adventure. The sea is chaotic. It's uncontrollable. It brings death. Okay, the sea. So with this loaded term, when he says the sea is no more, he also says down uh, in verse 4, I believe, the former things are passing away. So you think John just has a thing where he, I hate water. Is that what he's thinking? Or, again, this is a symbolic book. We're loaded. Symbols mean more, not less. If the sea means evil, chaos, suffering, tragedy, lostness, separation, ugliness, then this text is saying, all that's over. All that's over. I'm making all things new. There will be no more mourning 
or crying or pain. The old creation is unmade. There's something new. I really do think you're supposed to use kind of like a biblically focused imagination here. And we're not given a lot of details probably because we couldn't handle it. But we are given a, a ground floor, right? Jesus says we'll do things like feast. There'll be a wedding feast. You guys know how to do that? Can I get an amen, right? I'm a professional. We're really good at that here at this church, okay? Come to the luncheon in two weeks. Um, we'll feast. Um, we'll eat. We'll drink. There will be beauty. Romans 8, it's not that there won't be the beauty of nature. He says nature right now is corrupted and broken and rusted out. The new thing's going to be fantastic, if you like a hike in the mountains now, what's the new earth look like? Okay, everything is new. Everything is new. And here's the best part. Look at verse three. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Are you catching a point? What are we told three times in that one statement? God will be with you with us here oh man you ever stood at the edge of like the grand canyon you like heights or you ever gone surfing and the wave is just a little too big or um uh, certain animals wildlife experiences something where you're like oh that's too big but this is awesome add 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 his person he's a holy person who made the heavens and the earth he names the stars. He controls it all. The holiness of God. I mean, for, we can't even imagine what it would be like. Now, he's with us now by his, by his spirit, but what if, what if all the veils were off and all the distances were closed and we were like with him as a friend, as a father, as the savior, and his eyes are on you and your eyes are on him and you're loved and you're safe and you're knowing one another. I mean, come on. That's heaven, to be with God. And we will be with God as our God forever. No distance, no separation, no confusion, just closeness, intimacy, fellowship, joy, joy, joy beyond joy. That's the promise. Now you'll notice, again, remember symbols. What's the city dressed like? The city is wearing a dress, okay? That's why, what do you have to remember? Symbolism, right? Doesn't mean less, it means more. City's wearing a dress, you're like, that's tacky, weird. Okay, symbolism means more. City, what do you have in a city? Culture, art, music, people. People interacting, doing, creating, relating. Making, living, people, city, a people. Wedding dress. What do you do with those? You get married. The wait's over. Two people who love each other and want to be with, together and aren't quite fully together yet are finally coming together. And the celebration will be awesome. And we can't wait to be together. We're going to be together and be close together. This is the one I love the most. We're going to be together forever, one. So the city with a dress means the people of God. 
will be so close and intimate with God. That's the marriage. Jesus and the church. It's in the shade of that truth I want to raise this first point of. You know, I felt it before. How can you, you know, Jesus did say, right, that there's no sex in heaven because there's no marriage in heaven. And in that regard, you'll be like the angels. And I think in that regard, it doesn't mean wings and all that. It means you're not married, okay? And so those of us who are married or maybe hope to be married kind of go, eh, that's a, that's a negative on heaven, right? Did anybody ever feel that way? Now, I can't tell you quite how this will work. I, I, I can't quite conceive of what it will be like for Marcia not to be uniquely special to me as my wife and not anybody else's wife in heaven. I'm not, I'm not sure what to do with that. But I think C.S. Lewis really helps here. No, he's one of these authors. He's done a lot of thinking on heaven. He's so helpful. And he, I'll give you this, I'll give you this quote he gives in, in episodes. So first one, here we go. It starts with this, as regard to the fast. So as regard to the fast, Lewis said, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. Now, are you tracking with what Lewis is saying? What's the fast we anticipate in heaven? No marriage, no sexual expression. It's a check on, a check on the negative for heaven. A fast. It's a fast. Well, imagine explaining the marital relationship to a young boy is asking, and, and what does he think of as the, as the highest physical pleasure? Do they have Krispy Kreme, okay? Do they have chocolate? Cookies, okay? Now, that is a pleasure. I like them myself, but the adults are like, nah, it can be better. You, you see what I'm saying? Second paragraph. On receiving the answer, no, he, the young boy, might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. Oh, right? In vain, you would tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. And here's where Lewis is helpful. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Little boy hasn't grown up yet, but then that's fine. And he can't quite get the pleasures of what's next. He's not there yet. We haven't grown up yet either. We, we can taste it. We have an idea. Husbands and wives, Ephesians 5, what do we stand for? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, look to and respect and honor your husbands like the church does to Christ. So every marriage is supposed to be a picture and a sermon of what? Of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done. And when we get to heaven, well, now's the wedding feast, Right? I get to do a couple weddings this fall. I'm excited. And we're going to eat a lot of food and have fun and dance and party. And when I'm there, it's just the tiniest shred of what's coming. What's coming? The city. Dressed like a bride with Jesus. 
or when your marriage is sweet and you love it and there's intimacy and fellowship and friendship and teamwork and unity. It's beautiful. Preach. It's a sermon of the gospel. But it's just, remember, it's the tiniest taste of guess what? What's coming? The ultimate marriage, the real marriage. For each one of God's people, we'll grow up into that and we'll be like, oh, this is better. Now I get why that's not all it was cracked up to be. It was looking toward to the ultimate. Does that make sense? That's helpful for me. It'll be better. It'll be better. And we'll be happy. So happy. Verse four, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. You know, when you've buried a loved one recently, it's heavy on your heart. When you've had a friendship end, it's heavy on your heart. Mourning, crying, or pain, when your body's wrecked with uh, sickness, with illness, when your relationship is broken, when you're struggling with depression, when, you're, when things aren't going right, when everything seems broken, you almost can't even imagine something like this. But God is gonna unmake and remake all those things for his people, and it's gonna be wiped. It'll pass away. The sting will be over. That'll be awesome, won't it? Okay, so one more question to hit here then. How can I have joy in the next life if my loved ones aren't there? Please don't, please don't think, I'm gonna try to answer this from my point of view. Please don't think I'm taking this lightly. This is hard, this is heavy. This is a grief, this is mourning. It should be. I, I don't mean to lighten the grief and the mourning of this at all. Um, the Apostle Paul, Romans 9, the beginning, mourns and grieves for his brothers who don't receive the gospel. There's, there's no way to make this easy. But I do want to come at the question, how is it possible, right? Because we have a, an apparent contradiction. What is God promising in the ultimate heaven forever? No mourning. And what are we anticipating? Mourning. I mean, how, how can this be? So I'm just trying to get at how it could be, okay? Number one, some assumptions. We have to unlearn so many things when we think of heaven I, and hell. We may have the idea of hell being full of poor victims begging to be allowed into heaven, but God is mean and says no. I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. I do anticipate that people in hell will not want to stay there, but I don't think they would want to go to heaven. Because you remember what the highlight of heaven is? God. And who have they not wanted to be with? God. That's the whole point. Hell is God finally saying, okay, don't be with me. So they wouldn't enjoy heaven. If you don't like God, heaven won't be much fun to you because God is everything. He's in everything. Again, I think Lewis is helpful here. Look at, this, look at this statement he gives. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. You hear it? So for a Christian, well, first of all, everyone is on this road, right? You are living this life and you are on a road right now of fitness for your next life, for your next home. You're investing in it. You're heading towards it. Every choice moves you that way. And if you're a Christian, we know God's word. It says, what are, we be, what are we being formed into by the Holy Spirit? The image of Christ, right? He's, 
He's making us more and more fit for his presence and how we think and how we feel and what we love. We're being sanctified. We're being changed. And the way to get that was like Lewis said, thy will be done. Don't you have to, to become a Christian? You repent of your sin. You submit yourself. You surrender to another. You say, Jesus, your way, right? I'm following you. And then he, when you give up your life, you gain your life. He gives you new life, right? Well, what about the other side of it? Uh, what about the other side of it? What, what about when you look at Jesus and say, I don't want that. I don't want you. I don't want you. what you've done for me. Well, what, if, what if that person says, I will serve myself. I will follow myself. I'll, I'll be my own authority. Well, doesn't that have an effect and a change as well? Okay? And listen, by the, by the time we come to this moment of history, judgment day, New heaven, new earth. Everything will be so different. Everything will be so different. What will you look like if you're in Christ on judgment day? What will his work have done in you? I mean, Jesus says amazing things like the righteous will shine like the sun. You'll have a glorified body. You'll have a new mind, a new heart. You'll always love what is right and beautiful and good and true. Sin won't even be a temptation for you anymore because your heart will be so pure and so right. You always love God and what's good, and that's what you do. And you love his ways, and you're, you'd be beautiful, beautiful. What will the unbeliever look like? I mean, we, we say that in, in hell, it's a separation from God. And do you understand the depth of that? Uh, from a Christian worldview, what is at the heart of everything that's good ever anywhere? What makes something good? God. So listen, right here in this life, in this age, in this place, there are unbelievers who are nicer than you. I've met them. There are unbelievers who are more generous than I am and more passionate about good things in many cases. Okay? This is true, right? And there are some Christians out there who look like a train wreck, okay? We'll remember how one gets saved. Is it getting your life all together? It's trusting the gospel, right? But on, on that moment, it will have all played out. It will have all rolled out. And for someone to be separated from the goodness and the providence and the presence of God and therefore to be totally overwhelmed by sin and selfishness and anger and pride, 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 pride. What will that person be in that moment when God has let them go? I think it will be, I think it will be very ugly looking and very awful. And so, I don't know if this helps me mentally. This is the way I understand it. Listen, in this life, in this place, okay, mourn. Mourn and grieve for those who have not trusted the gospel and who don't now. Do that. If you walk around not mourning it right now, you're off. We should mourn it more than we do. But on that day, when, when Jesus has come and made things right, I believe that you will see things with such a new perspective and that you will be so different in Christ and they will be so different without Christ 
that there is no way that pity for someone who did not want God will overwhelm joy for those who are in God. There's no way he will allow that. There's no way it'll happen in your mind or your heart. You'll see through his eyes and you'll see the justness of it and the rightness of it and the perfection of it. And somehow in the way he can handle it, you will have joy in him. I don't think joy in heaven comes from ignorance. I just don't know anything anymore. I don't think the Bible gives you that at all. I think it comes from wisdom. You'll know more like he knows. That's my shot at it. Last one, okay, most important. How do you get to heaven? I'm gonna tell you my problem. Here, look at verse eight. Don't leave me yet, guys. Look at verse eight. In verses six to eight, you have this division, right? There's, there's one group in the new heaven, the new earth. There's another group, the lake that burns with fire. I don't know if that's literal or it's a symbol, but remember, symbol means what? Or, okay? That's a rough symbol. Here's my problem, verse eight. As, look who goes to the lake. As for the cowardly. Okay, any up. Anybody in here, ever, in here ever been cowardly for Jesus? I'll, I'll be the first in line, okay? I have a problem. How about the faithless? You ever broke your promise, betrayed somebody, let them down? Okay, you've been faithless? Me too. Detestable. Remember that thing in your closet that you're trying to forget? You don't want anybody else in here to know about it? The thing you did that you love, that you are so ashamed of, you're trying to pretend it's not there, you've lied to yourself that it's not there, it's there, God sees it. You ever done anything detestable? I have. I have. Murderers. You're like, whew, finally out of that one. No, no, no. Jesus said if you've ever hated someone in your heart, insulted them bitterly, wanted them out, you think they're less than human, man, you're guilty, you're a murderer. I'm in trouble. Sexually immoral. Oh, come on. Jesus said, if you lust after someone to see or to have something that's not yours in covenant, you've broken that, not to mention everything we've done with our eyes and our hands and our bodies. Are you sexually immoral? Sorcerers. Oh, I never killed a goat in the woods, but how about this one? What's that thing in the newspaper about the stars that supposedly guide your destiny? Yeah, you ever followed that? You ever trusted in that? What is that mess? Oh, this month it'll be, a lot of people do, okay? That's sorcery. How about this one, idolaters? Gosh, who gets out from under this? And to be an idol worship is to look to something that's not God to provide for you what only God can. Authority, meaning, truth, joy. I'm an idolater. Liars. Anybody not lied? No, you're guilty, right? Do you have a problem with verse 8? Because that's the kind of people who go to the lake. And I've done every one of them. And I'm so happy that in this verse it doesn't say, to those who got it all right, they go to the new earth. What does it call them in verse 6? To the, to the who? The thirsty. The thirsty. I got this need for a drink. I got this need for a drink. To this thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life, and then let's just celebrate these next two words, without payment. So you're saying the cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, can come and get a drink for free and see the new earth and go to heaven? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. John 7, 37, what did Jesus say? 
By the way, the author who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote Revelation. So these themes tie together. John 7, 37, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him what? Come to me and drink. Drink from who Jesus is. He came for you. Took on flesh. He came for you. He lived a perfect life for you. He's the only one who got verse 8 right. Perfect. Perfect. He died on a cross for you to pay for all the times you've done this. And he rose from the dead for you to give you new life in him. And he reigns for you. And to be thirsty for him, you can have all that he is and all he's done if you repent of your sins and trust in him. It's faith. It's calling on him saying, I need you. Save me. Save me. Be mine. Let me follow you. And it's amazing. When you go to Jesus with your thirst and he gives you to drink, the people of verse 8 are, tra are transformed into the people of verse 7. Verse 7 John says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son, my daughter. You drink from Jesus, you get adopted, and you're changed, and you're changed. Doesn't Jesus begin to make you courageous instead of cowardly? You want to stand for him? Doesn't he begin to make you faithful instead of faithless? Doesn't he make you honorable instead of detestable? You start to love what's right. Doesn't he make you more gracious, forgiving, instead of murderous? Doesn't he give you a desire to, be, to have integrity in your sexuality? Doesn't he make you devoted to him, not idols? Doesn't he make you honest? He's the one who transforms you from, from the lostness of verse 8 to the child of verse 7. It's through faith in him, trust in him, trust in him. How do you get to heaven? Be thirsty for Jesus. He'll give you the water without price. He'll give it to you for free. You guys, this is motivating. You know, this, this letter worked. Uh, the Christians in the first two centuries faced just unbelievable persecution. Guess what happened to the church? Right? And part of it's the hope of heaven. It works. Do you know where you're going? Do you anticipate it? Do you long for it? Are you ready to depart and to be with Christ in his time? Let's go. You're ready to see that new earth. Losses is over and our fellowship is renewed. We're right. I am. How do you get there? Gosh, I sound like the commercial. This is better than Dosa Keys, but stay thirsty. Isn't that what he's saying? Thirsty. Be thirsty for Jesus, who he is and what he's done. He'll transform you and he'll take you to the new earth and that will be heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for doing what we couldn't do. I don't deserve to see your presence or heaven itself. Thank you for coming for me. Thank you for preparing a place for us to enjoy you and one another forever. As we hear these things, Lord, we pray you'd make us thirsty. God, that uh, we would long for you, Lord Jesus, that we'd seek after you, we'd desire you, we'd hope in you, and uh, you'd get us there. God, give us just a joy and a wonder that we're going to be in paradise, that we're going to be on that new earth with you forever, and, uh, and keep us faithful now, Lord, following you with all our hearts, thankful for what you've done for us in the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.